0: Well, uh, our Christmas program is next week, uh, which means that we are now in the final week of our Advent sermon series called Messiah, uh, where we have been um, spending some time in the book of Isaiah looking at how prophecies about God's coming kingdom have been fulfilled in Jesus. And uh, throughout the sermon series, we've been looking at how God used the prophet Isaiah to speak into the lives of God's people at different points in their history and how God continues to speak through the words of the prophet in our lives today. Uh, Last week, we we talked about how God's promise of a Messiah gives us hope in the midst of hardship, how when we're facing a difficult situation in our lives, we have a choice. Uh, We can either become so fixated on that hardship that we can't look past it uh, and we lose hope, or we can fix our eyes on Jesus, who gives us hope of a life and a kingdom beyond this one. Um, and this week, I'd, I'd like to talk about how we make sense of life on the other side of hardship. You know, oftentimes in the, in the midst of a difficult situation, we can't really see the forest for the trees. And the only thing we can do is, is put our hope and our trust in God. And usually it's only on the other side of that hardship that we can begin to understand what God was doing in the middle of it. It's, it, you know, it's only when we're able to, to look back on our lives at a given point in time that we're able to wrap our heads around what God was up to. The thing about this reminded me of a, a story uh, about an engineer at NASA who was assigned to prepare a presentation on lessons learned from the team's bad experiences with the Hubble Space Telescope. Um, and on his chart at the briefing, uh, lesson number one read, in naming your mission, never use a word that rhymes with trouble. It's a pretty good lesson. You know, as they say, hindsight is twenty-twenty. You know, it's, it's true that the wisdom and insight are oftentimes only gained after we journey through difficulty. And this sort of wisdom and insight is what I like to call taking the long view of life. You know, taking the long view means recognizing that the events of the past oftentimes only find their meaning in the future. I'm going to say that one more time. Taking the long view means recognizing that events of the past oftentimes only find their meaning in the future. But in order to discover that meaning, we have to persevere in the present. And and this is a truth that we'll discover in our passage for this morning, which comes to us uh, from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. Uh, So go ahead and open up your Bibles there uh, if you have them with you. If you don't, you have some in front of you in your pews. If you don't have a Bible, that is our gift to you today. Um, So go ahead and uh, open your Bibles up. Um, If you have your Bible on your phone, go ahead and check in on Facebook and let people know that you are here worshiping with us this morning. Um, And uh, that's a really great outreach tool, just a wonderful way to kind of share where your church home is and invite people to come with you. Um, So, uh, you know, I named this sermon series Messiah, but the funny thing about the book of Isaiah is it actually never uses the title Messiah uh, when it's talking about the promised king. Um, Instead, it uses the term servant. Uh, And we find that word in our passage for this morning, uh, which is one of four servant songs that we find in the book of Isaiah. Um, And these passages, these four passages are like little psalms, little, little songs nestled in the midst of Isaiah's writing that describe the new king that God was promising his people. Um, and the, the context of these songs is the same as our passage from last week, okay? Their, their original audience, the people who would have first heard this, uh, would have been God's people in exile, all right? So God had, had sent his people to that point. God had sent his people king after king who had failed in showing them how to be servants of their God, and prophet after prophet who had warned them that if they did not turn back to God and change their ways, not just personally, but also as, as a larger society, that they would come under God's judgment. And they did. Starting in 605 B.C., the Babylonians began attacking the southern king of, the kingdom of Judah, which led to the eventual downfall of their capital city of Jerusalem in the year 586 B.C. And throughout this time those who were lucky enough to survive the attacks were sent into exile, um, which was was essentially a refugee camp near Babylon where they would be assimilated into Babylonian culture. Uh, That's how the Babylonian Empire expanded their kingdom, you know, by force and coercion. So they would would attack a land with terrible force. Uh, There would be mass death and destruction, and then those who were lucky enough to survive were stripped of their homes, their families, their identities, and their place in society, and sent to a foreign land where they would be coerced into being citizens of the Babylonian Empire. So that's where we find God's people when these words of Isaiah 42 came to them. Their, their kings had failed them, and, and they had failed both personally and corporately as a society, and now they were paying the penalty for their failures, Now, God had allowed the Babylonian Empire to take Jerusalem by force, but that was by no means God's final word to his people. Because in the midst of Israel's failure, God promised to send them a servant king who would not fail them as their other kings had. These words of Isaiah 42 help to shape an expectation of God's people for a Messiah or a promised king who would come and be the kind of king that all the rest of their kings should have been, but had failed to be. But at this time, this, this was only a promise that God's people held on to in the midst of their hardship in exile. And it was only on the other side of the exile, and for that matter, on the other side of the cross, that these words would truly begin to make sense. Again, hindsight is always twenty twenty. The promise that we find in Isaiah 42 is shaped by events of the past, but it finds, these words in Isaiah 42 find their ultimate meaning in the future. And it was only those willing to take the long view on life who would eventually discover their meaning. So let's discover their meaning together this morning. Uh, The passage begins in in verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold. My chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. So God is saying to his people in exile, Your kings have failed you, but here is my servant whom I uphold, whom I have chosen, and in whom I delight. And God would actually put this another way at the baptism of Jesus. When the clouds would open up and the Spirit would descend on Jesus like a dove and a voice from heaven would say, This is my Son, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. You remember what I was saying about the past finding its meaning in the future? There's an example of it right there. And we see that this servant King, on whom God's Spirit would rest and in whom God would delight, would bring justice to the nations. Now, the Hebrew word used for for justice here literally means judgment uh, or or the the rule that guides a people. And essentially what, what it means is that this king would set up a righteous kingdom that puts all people on a level playing field and disconnects itself from any unrighteous powers. And that's quite the opposite from how Previous kings operated before the exile, right? People were not on a level playing field because previous kings of Israel had allowed injustice to rule in their land. Not only did they cater to the rich and powerful, but those who were not rich or powerful were left out in the cold, particularly the widow and the orphan. Those who uh, the the book of Isaiah fends for time and time again, uh, those were the people with no one to advocate or provide for them in society, and they were left to fend for themselves in those days. Not only that, but the previous kings had given themselves to power politics. Instead of faithfully relying on God for their strength and power, they fearfully succumbed to the most powerful empire of the day. You know, King Ahaz did it with the Assyrians, and King Hezekiah did it with the Babylonians. Not only that, but previous kings allowed the Sabbath to be trampled upon. You know, people treated the Sabbath just like any other day of the week. Buying, selling, and working instead of setting it aside as a holy day of worship and rest like God had commanded them to do. And we see all of these things throughout the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah calling out, God putting these words in Isaiah's mouth to hand to the people to say, look at all this stuff you're doing. This is not okay. And so God finally looked at this injustice, which had become the rule of the land, and said, enough, I'm going to send you a king who's going to show you what true justice looks like. You know, justice that doesn't succumb to power politics, justice that ensures that the vulnerable are cared for, justice that sets my people apart from the rest of the world in the way that they order their very lives. But how would God establish this kingdom of justice? At the time, it would have seemed unlikely at best, you know, because much like today, Isaiah's world seemed to be governed by the rule of eat or be eaten. You know, coercion and force seemed to be the only means of establishing a kingdom because the world was ran by whoever was best at coercing and forcing. At that point, it just happened to be the Babylonian Empire. So honestly, what God's people were expecting was for God to send a king more powerful than the Babylonians to come in and start kicking tail and taking names. You know, to them that would be justice. To to just say, "Yeah, take that Babylonians. How's it taste?" right? You're getting a taste of your own medicine. But what God's God's people could not know at that point was that God would not establish his kingdom of justice by means of coercion and force. Quite the opposite. We catch a glimpse of how God would establish his kingdom of justice in verses 2 and 3 of our passage by sending a gentle servant king. Verse 2. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. Not by force, not by coercion, in faithfulness, quietly, gently, lovingly. This is what we see in the Christmas story. Author Philip Yancey describes the the coming of the Messiah like this. He says, the Messiah who showed up wore the glory of humility. I like that. The glory of humility. The God who roared who could order armies and empires about like pawns on a chessboard, which we see God doing throughout the book of Isaiah. This God emerged in Palestine as a baby who could not speak or eat solid food or even control his bladder, who depended on a teenage couple for shelter, food, and love. That was how God chose to send us the Messiah, the promised king, who would divide history and establish a kingdom of justice that would never fail. That was how God chose to do it. Instead of playing by the world's uh, uh, rules of status and power and strength, winning the day, God chose to play by a completely different set of rules. And it was in this way that God leveled the playing field and established a kingdom that would stand the test of time. Jesus, the Messiah, leveled the playing field by paying no regard to a person's social status or wealth or background, but rather instituted justice by looking straight through all of those external things right into a person's very soul. That's how Jesus rolled. To those who would say, do you have any idea who you're messing with? Jesus would respond, yeah, I do. And who you think you are is what is separating you from God's heart. Quietly, lovingly, and in humility, Jesus humbled the proud and lifted up the lowly. With quiet strength, he exposed human striving for what it is and showed us another way to live. And when we follow the leadership of this king, his kingdom is established on earth. Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer at Presbyterian Church in New York City, puts it this way. He says, The kingdom of God is nothing less than the power of God in heaven entering the world to heal every alienation and every brokenness in every dimension of human life, whether it's social, economic, racial, emotional, physical, psychological, or spiritual. Every aspect of life, God's power, God's hope, coming in and invading and providing hope, restoration, healing. That's the kingdom of God. That's kingdom power. And that's the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to bring. Isaiah says of this, this promised king, verse 4, he will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands are Will put their hope. So essentially, the Messiah will bring God's kingdom into our midst and continue to bring it until God's reign covers the whole earth. That that means the kingdom Jesus came to bring was, was not just for one small group of people, but rather it was for everybody, everywhere, at every time. You know, when Isaiah refers to the islands, he's referring to foreign nations far away from where God's people were at that time. So he's he's basically saying to the farthest reaches of the earth, God is going to establish this kingdom of justice. Now, this all sounds like a really nice idea, but when we look at the world today, it's pretty easy to think, really, God? Are you really doing that? Because the fact of the matter is that the world still largely operates in the same way as Isaiah's world. The world still seems to play by the same rule of eat or be eaten. You know, that means everywhere we look, there's injustice, there's poverty, there are people being exploited for the gain of others, and the unrighteous seem to come out ahead. But this is where the words of Isaiah call us to take the long view. Because human kingdoms are concerned with getting results here and now. So that means there's, there's always going to be people looking out for the next best way to, to get ahead of another per, or at another person's expense, constantly looking out for themselves. And they might be successful at that for a time, but, as Isaiah shows us, there will come a day when they realize that the kingdom they have built for themselves here on earth is no more permanent than any other kingdom that has come before them. Because kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Businesses boom and collapse. Wealth comes and goes. Success and power and influence fade over time. But on the other hand, the kingdom of God, rather than being concerned with getting results here and now, is concerned with the transformation of the whole earth over a long period of time. And only those, get this, only those who have eyes to see and ears to hear have the privilege in taking part in that work of transformation. This is what God is is saying to his people in the the second half of our passage, verse 5. This is what the Lord says. The creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and the life to those who walk in it. So the God who created the heavens and the earth, he says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. So God is in the business of setting free the captive, of lifting up the lowly and humbling those who think they're hot stuff for the sake of all to witness the glory and the power of His coming kingdom, leveling the playing field for the glory of God so that people can look at the people of God and say, those people are different. They don't play by the same rules of the rest of this world that plays by the rule of eat or be eaten. Those people know what's up. And how would God do this? By sending us Jesus, who opened the eyes of the blind, set people free from imprisonment, People who were sitting in a dark dungeon of sin or pride or self-aggrandizement or poverty or sickness or grief or pain would be set free by the power of the kingdom that Jesus came to bring. Amen? Have you been set free by that power of the kingdom that Jesus came to bring this morning? Can I get an amen? I've been set free by that power. Jesus has shown me what it means to not have to play by the rest of the rules, worlds, and it is so free. When you realize that you're not bound by that because you're a child of the Most High God, and when you're a child of the Most High God, that's the only thing that matters. And that's the only thing that matters when you look at another person. It doesn't matter who they are, where they came from, what their story is. That's what matters. And then, when Jesus went to be with his Father in heaven he turned to his followers and said, now it's your turn. That's what he said to his followers. Now it's your turn. Instead of resigning ourselves to helplessness in the face of darkness or evil or injustice when we see it in this world, we who stand on the other side of the cross are called to stand in the strength of the same spirit that rested on this servant king and take on his role in a broken and hurting world. That's what Jesus did. When he went to be with the Father, he left his work to us, his followers, the church. That same kingdom that Jesus came to bring at Christmas is still coming today. And Jesus has entrusted us with the work of bringing it. That's pretty cool. So That means everywhere we see darkness, we are called to shine the light of Christ. And in that way, we allow God's future to define our past. When we allow the light of Christ to shine in the darkness, we allow God's future to define our past. That, that, that includes all the, the dark stuff, all the brokenness, all the pain. God's future defines that. And God says, no, 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 none of that. I am doing something new. All right? So our angel tree is, is just one small example Of how we're living into that as a church. You know, working together to bring hope and light to three needy families in the Marshall area this Christmas. One example. But that's how the kingdom of God comes. One person at a time, one situation at a time, in both big and small ways, until entire societies are transformed. That's the work of the church. That's the work of the kingdom. You know, anywhere the justice of God, that justice that we talked about, is transforming lives, the kingdom of God has come and is coming. And God's kingdom will not stop coming until all creation has been transformed. God's future will continue to define people's past until His glory is known throughout all the earth. Verses 8 and 9. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. So all this stuff that people seem to lift up above God and say, no, this is more important. No, this is the way the world works. God is going to confound all those things and say, they are temporary. They don't last. There's nothing to them. Let me tell you what lasts. See, the former things have taken place. The exile has come and gone. We are on the other side of the cross. And new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. God is doing a new thing. And before it even sprang into being, He announced it to us in the prophet Isaiah. And God is doing a new thing in Jesus. So in our own lives, when we're faced... With this king who comes, but does not coerce us to be a part of his kingdom. Who allows human kingdoms to survive, and yes, even thrive, alongside the one that he came to bring. What will our response be, church? And when we're faced with injustice, or trouble, or pain in our own lives, or the lives of those around us, what will our response be? Will we allow the present way of the world, the rules that the world plays by, to define us? Or, like God's people in exile, will we allow God's future to define our past? Will we take the short view and strive for results here and now, busily trying to build our own kingdoms? Or will we step back, take the long view, and participate in God's kingdom that has come? in His coming. Let's pray about that. God, we thank You for this message this morning that is both humbling and hopeful at the same time. God, that You are up to something that is so much bigger than our tiny little lives And that God, yes, our lives are tiny, but Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being swept up into that big thing that you are doing in Jesus. God, we thank you that we get to play a small part in that, whatever that part is. God, we thank you that when Jesus went to be with the Father, that that he turned to us, his church, and said, now it's your turn. And so God, I just pray that we, your people, that this church would be ambassadors of your kingdom, which has come and is coming. Lord, that as, as we bear witness to the way that, that your future has redefined our past, God, that, that people would take heart, that they would take courage. Lord, that, that as we engage in tangible acts of service and love and concern to people, just like our angel tree uh, this, this Christmas, Lord, and, and beyond, Lord, that people would see the power of the coming kingdom and would would notice that there is something different about who we are at a fundamental level, about the rules that we play by, which are not the same as the rules of this world. God, we play by your kingdom rules. And we thank you for that kingdom that you've come to bring in Jesus. And Lord, we pray that, that we would just have eyes to see and ears to hear, even when it's difficult even when it's hard, even when the noise of the world threatens to drown it out, God, that we could step back, take the long view, and consider what you have done and what you are doing in Jesus Christ. And it's His name. We pray these things, and all God's people said...